Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Fred Cohen, MD, who is headache specialist at Mount Sinai Medical System in New York City. We will discuss how to combat hormonal headaches. Fred Cohen is assistant professor of medicine and neurology at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We will discuss migraines. Fred, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Urology at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, is trained in internal medicine and headache medicine. A lifelong headache sufferer, his research interests include treatments for chronic migraine and evaluating the epidemiology, burden, and impact of migraine. He's Assistant Editor of Headache, the Journal of Head and Face Pain and Current Pain, and Headache Reports. Fred, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with a conflict of interest statement. Is Are you receiving funding or any compensation from third parties um, that we should know about? Sure. I, I receive a small honorarium for being a section editor for Current Pain and Headache Reports. I serve as one of their editors, um, and they give me a small amount of money for my time. It doesn't you know, have any sway in sort of prescriptions or how I manage just for, you know, managing their publications. What are we talking about when we say migraines? Because I think a lot of people think that migraines and headaches are the same thing. And I think they're not. Let, so let, I'll they're let you not. say it. That's a very, very, very common misconception. So what is a migraine? A migraine in, in a simple way, because migraines are a very complexing thing. You could think of it as a very severe headache with additional symptoms to it. It's not just pain. So first, and you know, the obvious symptom of the pain, it's a typically, and this, you know, pain is subjective. You know, I like to joke that every doctor would say they have the hardest field of medicine. I say headache doctors have the hardest field of medicine because we don't have really any tests. It's all pain. It's subjective. You know, it's not like if you were a cardiologist and you're looking at, you know, a scan of the heart, you say, oh, it looks, you know, it's, you know, everyone feels pain differently. Everyone's unique. So it's generally a severe pain, typically described as a throbbing or pulsating pain um, that lasts for many hours, even days, and typically is associated with light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, um, and nausea. And it doesn't have to have those. And there also could be what's called an aura. An aura is any sort of neurological symptom. The most common one being like flashing lights and zigzags. It could be, you know, ear fullness. It could be difficulty reading or difficulty speaking. It could really, even there's something called hemiplegic migraine where the migraine mimics a stroke, can really do a lot of different symptoms. But it's, it's more than just a headache. You know, I like to tell people, if you ever had a headache attack where the pain was super severe and you had to go to a, a cold, cool, dark, quiet room, that probably was a migraine. What causes migraines? Now, that's the, that's the big question. And the short thing is, if you figure it out, you won the Nobel Prize in Medicine. So this has been an ongoing big you know, debate question for you know, many, many years, decades, centuries. And the theory has actually been changed over time where the, like, we don't fully understand it. We know parts of it. We know parts of the uh, pieces of the puzzle. And every year, there's new pieces that are figured out. And in, in summary, it is a neuroinflammatory attack, meaning we know that there is this wave cascade of in, uh, inflammatory markers that are released, and that triggers you know, other things that then lead to this pain and other symptoms. 
Um, but the, you know, the question that is, well, what starts that wave? What's the spark? And we don't fully know that yet. You know, there's a lot of like just recently I was just in Seoul, South Korea for the International Headache Congress, and they were actually presenting, you know, new kinds of messenger style uh, things and neurons about how that could be related to causing the attack. So this is still an ongoing thing. So we don't know sort of the why, we know the how. And again, you have all this neuroinflammation and think of it like, you know, you're spilling a, a bucket of water and then, you know, all these other um, areas, these pain pathways are triggered. And another way I describe it is think of, think of a racetrack, meaning if I pinch your cheek, you know, if I pinch your leg, all right, that sends a signal up the nervous system and back down. It's a loop. It finishes the lap around the racetrack, right? Well, when it comes to migraine, there's no finish line, really. It's going around and around and around and around and it's ramping up. And that's why the pain usually starts slow and gets bigger and bigger. And there's no finish line. It's not till a while on that finally these inflammatory neuropeptides markers go away and then it finally finishes. It's my understanding, I think that I sort of heard you say that, that it's a neurological condition. Is that right? Yes, it is a neurological condition and an inflammatory-based one. And therefore, if left untreated, it is it progresses? Is that an app description? It can. You know, there, so you have what we call episodic migraine. Those are people who have it once a week four times, maybe eight times a month. Then there are those that have chronic migraine. And that means it's happening even more than that. The definition of chronic migraine is you're having eight migraine attacks a month plus seven or more other less severe headache attacks. And there's a lot of research into what leads to that chronic migraine. And one is not having adequate treatment, meaning not, not seeking proper health, proper treatment, and therefore it could worsen over time. And is it also correct that it is likely to shorten the sufferer's life, that people whose condition becomes more severe are likely to live shorter lives? This is another area that's heavily investigated is migraine, what we call a comorbidity, a correlated condition to other things. You know, they've looked at it for heart attacks, strokes. There was actually a big debate this past June. Every June is the national... Uh, meeting, the American Headache Society scientific meeting, there was a big debate on stage about can it be related to dementia, you know, and and the, the outcome of that is we're not sure. There's a lot of, now since it's a neurological condition and there's a lot of, like I said, neuroinflammation, there's a lot of speculation that it could be related to developing things like dementia. We do know after a lot of systematic reviews that the women with migraine, with aura. Remember, the aura is you're having the, you know, the headache pain, but before that, there is this other neurological symptom occurring. Women with migraine, with aura, do have a small increased risk of stroke. When, uh, when it comes to other conditions, some reports have correlated it with, you know, cardiovascular disease, and we do know there's a correlation with conditions like asthma, but it's sort of, you know, a chicken versus the egg scenario. There's a lot of what we call confounding data. Like, it's not sort of concrete with other conditions? Is it actually, is it the condition of migraine leading to this? Or is it, you know, those with chronic migraine typically have a very high burden. Is it their, you know, disabled lifestyle that is then leading to these conditions? Because, you know, those who suffer from chronic migraine, they're not able as much to be as outgoing, as active, more sedentary. And of course, that brings its own medical issues with it as well. What role does blood flow play 
in the migraine condition? So that's actually going with one of the old theories. The old theory of migraine was it was a vascular problem and meaning it was something going on with the arteries, the veins, et cetera, of the head. And the reason that came about uh, a couple of reasons, one, that the early treatments for blood pressure drugs, like our early treatment of migraine is propanolol, beta blocker, heart rate drug, you could decrease pressure too, and it worked. A lot of people with migraine would say they feel pounding. It feels like, you know, their artery is pounding. And it wasn't until later on in recent decades that it was actually not proven to be true. Now, we do know that when you have, when I was saying that neuroinflammatory response, it does cause you know, changes in the vasculature, but that's like a secondary effect. It's not the primary thing of migraine. So there isn't really a blood flow issue. That was sort of an old school and old fashioned theory that has been debunked. What about caffeine? So some people say that caffeine triggers their migraines. Some people say that caffeine cures their migraines. What's, where's the truth? You're right. It's a double-edged sword. There are studies that show that it helps. There are studies that show it doesn't help. And the, so when it comes to helping, when the migraine attack is happening, going back to blood flow, one of the secondary things that are happening is what's called vasospasm. Vasospasm is that the walls of your arteries or arterioles, arterioles or tiny arteries are fluctuating. And why that's happening is in the walls of our arteries, there's uh, it's there's storage, storage of like platelets to block clots, storage of inflammatory markers. So when the body senses danger, you know, if something's cut, it releases the inflammatory markers to do its job. So during a migraine attack, there's this fluctuating of the walls and that leads to more inflammatory responses. When you consume caffeine, it constricts the blood vessels to stop them from moving like that. That's actually how there's a drug called triptans. People might have heard sumatriptan, risotriptan, also known as maxalt, imitrex. These are old, uh, I don't want to say old, but like drugs that were, have been around 70s and 80s that are very effective. Migraine medication, that's how they work. They cause that vasoconstriction. Um, and that's why caffeine is thought to help. But in the same breath, we know caffeine could trigger or, or worsen sometimes people with migraine. And that's to be thought, you know, caffeine works on a lot of different areas of the body, increases your heart rate, you know, so it's thought that while that area, the vasoconstriction is helping it, maybe for those individuals, it makes it worse because it boils down to Everyone's headache, everyone's migraine is unique. That's what I tell my patients. Because I can, some patients come to my office and they'll say, hey, my friend got this treatment, didn't do anything for me. Why? We both have migraine. Well, yes, but again, we don't fully understand it. There's maybe components of how your migraine works that is different from someone else's. And that, again, goes back to caffeine can help. Like caffeine helps me. Uh, you know, the other day I started getting, you know, a, a migraine attack. Uh, it was a mild one. I, you know, had a lot of coffee and it actually mild out. But again, I recognize that for some people, it might not be. And that's why I say never compare your headache, you know, with someone else's because it could easily be different. And there's also the concept that some of the things that help have the risk of causing the migraine. So you take something that alleviates the migraine, but that medicine itself can trigger a migraine. So you end up having a brief respite and then you get them the migraine again typically or... it's first like i'll give myself an example caffeine won't worsen it you know it's more that there's not many things that will make it better than make it worse later on like you know another example is exercise like for me if i start exercising with a migraine it's going to make things worse but i have patients who if they exercise it it actually dulls it out you know and again that comes back to 
you know, we have our common triggers, we have our common treatments, things like that, but everyone is different. When patients tell me that if, if someone tells me that they, they drink a ton of coffee and it feels very better after, okay, cool. Then they tell me like, oh yeah, if I have tea, if I have black tea, when I have my headache, like it makes it way worse. Cool. Stay away from it. How does this relate to the so-called triggers? What does that mean? So trigger is essentially triggering an attack, triggering a cycle. Um, and there are many, 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 many triggers. And some people don't have triggers, you know, some people, and what usually is, is that it's again, going to starting this whole pain cascade, this inflammatory cascade. For most people, there are triggers, but the migraine will still happen. It's just that finding your triggers reduces it. So uh, the most common trigger is stress. Stress, depression, anxiety are the most common ones. They've done population studies throughout, you know, the past decades in the United States and globally, and they found that's the number one. And then going down the list, weather changes are very common trigger. I always say migraine sufferers are the best meteorologists. You know that, you know you you it's a question I ask all my new visits when there are changes in weather. Do you notice a headache? And it's usually yeah, the rain, thunderstorms, blizzards, heat waves. Like this summer, I can't tell you how many patients were bringing up you know issues with the heat waves we had in New York City. You know, and the thing is that I actually was just on CBS News recently talking about this, where climate change. You know, it's climate change going to be driving we're going to get more bizarre weather phenomena stronger storms more hurricanes you know and is that going to increase our migraine frequency what about on the east coast we have those canadian wildfires all that smoke that came down you know i actually looked at the data of the sinai headache center the offices that treat it and other headache centers in new york city and even philadelphia and we saw there was an increase in the number of phone calls we received during the weeks of the of the wildfire smoke and and compared to those before and it raises a question like, oh, with all this going on, is this going to worsen that kind of trigger? Triggers, dietary ones, you know, and dietary triggers could be anything. But, you know, common ones that people report are uh, gluten, um, chocolate, going back to caffeine, nitrates, like with smoked meats. Um, I actually just wrote a manuscript about MSG. MSG is actually very controversial. A lot of people think it causes headaches. And for some, it definitely does. But the data for MSG causing headache is very muddled. For instance, all the studies we did like back in the 70s and 80s looking at MSG for headache, these trials are very, I want to use the word sketchy, um, where they gave five grams of MSG to participants. How much MSG do you think the average American consumes a day? What do you think it is? Not a clue. (laughs) 0.3 to 0.6 grams, way less than what the trials gave, you know, and even the trials, it was so-and-so if it actually caused headache. And what I tell patients when they bring up MSG is, you know, when it comes to any dietary or any diet they're trying, like I have people who've gone on keto, intermittent fasting, just keep a food diary, you know, keep track of everything you're consuming because a lot of people don't know that MSG is in a lot of stuff. Like it's naturally found in tomatoes, you know, so be sure, you know, it's not just an Asian cuisine. It's put in a lot of different food, but dietary stuff is definitely a trigger. And then it starts, you know, changes in sleep. Anything could be a trigger, you know, um, listening to me talk could be a trigger. You know, the, the, the weirdest example I give is, and I'll bring this into how do, how do I, you know, manage this is headache diary is the most important thing. It's all my patients. The price of admission is a headache diary. You want to hang out with me? I want a headache diary because we're all human. To remember all these things, when I ask you, when was your last headache attack? How many have you had in the past month, three months? We're human. We're not going to remember it. And keeping the diary is how we figure out our frequency and our triggers. I had a patient who was telling me she was having a headache four times a week. I said, Okay. Keep track of that. When she came back next time, she noted it. It was always in the morning. I said, okay, tell me about your morning routine next time. 
She comes back and she brought all what she cooks for breakfast and everything she does until noon. I noticed the day she had headache attacks, she was eating eggs. And I said, stop eating the eggs. Lo and behold, her, her headache frequency reduced drastically. So for her, why is egg a trigger? I don't know. You know, she does have an egg allergy. You know, why is it? I don't know. And then she came back to me the next visit saying her favorite food is omelets. And I told her, I don't know what to do for you. I figured out, you know, your trigger. Uh, you have to pick your poison there. But that's my point to help find these triggers. If you are someone, you know, you know, suffers from severe headaches, migraine, you know, diaries, it's 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 critical because really anything could be a trigger. I'm still stuck at tomatoes have MSG. Is this like a naturally occurring form of MSG? What is MSG? It's monosodium glutamate. It's a kind of glutamate, you know, uh, and isn't that human that... made? No, it's not that MSG is human made. We now have it as a spice, if you will, something you could add to food, meaning it was figured out, oh, back in the 19th century um, uh, over in Japan, actually, uh, what they call, it's actually the fifth taste book, umami. And that it was then later on synthesized that just like if you give sugar, you know, sweet, sour, you could give MSG and it was starting to be added to cooking, you know, so it could be, you know, naturally found, not in the quantities we have in, you know, processed food because we add it to it, but it's naturally found. It's not a completely man-made thing. The concept of adding it as a spice is a man-made thing, you know. It's not like you could go harvest the MSG, the, the MSG root. No, we synthesize it as something in this salt looking like, um, you know, add on for food. But uh, it's a very misno uh, misnomer. It's very uh, big misunderstanding that you might have heard of in the 70s. Um, or I don't know if, you, if your parents ever spoke about it or if you ever like met, you know, an old school doctor, something called Chinese restaurant syndrome which was an actually, you know, named thing that they noticed after eating Chinese food that it would give bloating, headache, shortness of breath, feeling flush. The person who wrote it was a Cantonese doctor. It was written in 1968 and he wrote it was his biggest regret because he was referring to American Chinese food, not actual Chinese food. And he said two decades later, like, I regret calling it this. I was meeting the American food, not Chinese food. So it's a big misnomer that, you know, it's strictly related to uh, Chinese cuisine, which is not true. So, you know, and that's why, you know, with any kind of dietary thing, you know, you can find, you know, if you looked online what MSG is naturally, you'll get lists and lists and keep a close diary, you know, and then you do what's called an elimination diet, meaning four to six weeks, whatever you're looking to eliminate, chocolate, MSG, gluten, et cetera. Um, exclude it for those four weeks strictly. If you don't notice a change, then you know what? It's not related. If you do notice a change, hey, congrats, you found it. About how many millions of Americans have migraines? The current number is around 42 million. And, you know, it's they do, these are called epidemiology studies, and it's estimated around 18% of women um, and anywhere from like 6% of men. So women do suffer from migraine more. Uh, women suffer more than men do. And again, that's what we know because my theory is I think it's more because when people tell me, oh yeah, like once every three months I get a really bad headache, it throbs, Advil doesn't work. I'm like, probably is a migraine attack. You know, so I think that number is higher. What's the relationship between these millions of people, and this is just in the US, that have this debilitating condition and sleep. That's another big topic that I could talk on and on about. So 
sleep. What I tell my patients is if you want good headache health, you need good sleep health. What does sleep do? This has been puzzling everyone, humans for millennia. What is sleep actually doing? You know, I don't know if you ever have, when you're going to sleep, ponder like, wait, what is this actually doing? Because when you go to sleep, your heart rate slows down, your metabolism slows down, your brain ain't slowing down. In fact, you know, phase four sleep, rapid REM sleep, rapid eye movement. You know, you dream, your brain's doing stuff. So what is it doing? What it's doing is it's flushing out all the byproducts it used in that day. Meaning when we feel, we think all that stuff, the brain, you know, feeling is energy, if you will, is all those neuropeptides that get used, they have byproducts. And when those build up, that's pro-inflammatory. When we sleep, you know, that's, there's something called the glymphatic symptoms. Think of the lymphatic system, right? Lymphatic system in our body, um, lymph nodes, you know, think about getting rid of bacteria and trash and whatnot. The glymphatic system is that for the brain, you know? And when you get poor sleep, you are impairing that system. And therefore you're not flushing out all the trash and it's leading to more inflammation. So that's why I always ask about sleep at every visit I do. You know, we do know that, you know, I, I catch things like obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, you know, delayed sleep disorder all the time. And I say, hey, like, you know, no matter how many pills I sprinkle on you, if you have bad sleep, it's only going to help so much. So sleep is a major, major component. If you sleep well, your migraines might go away? It will improve. Like, you know, migraine are rarely just one thing and i tell the patient it's not like a switch we flick and they're gone there's usually a multiple of things it's mostly genetic it's very common that you know i'll give an example i'm the only male migraine sufferer in my family all the other like my mom my 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 aunt my grandmother you know they all uh, have suffered migraines i'm you know the unlucky male based on probability um and that there are sleep is just things that we can do to help it like yes i have had patients that they slept better and they gone away. Some people it hasn't, but it's made it better. You know, there's nothing I can say is foolproof way of curing migraines. I rarely cure migraine. What typically happens is we make it much more improved and we have medications that when you do get an attack, it stops the attack and you go back with your life. What about alcohol? There seems to be a demonstrated relationship between alcohol and migraines. Is that right? You know, it's funny you say that because that has been always the hallmark answer. There was actually a recent publication that sort of might be like, actually, that's not true. Um, and again, I'm not sure the mechanism directly why it's likely related to, again, inflammation, but it is a common trigger. I'll give an example. Wine for me, you know, red wine triggers a migraine for myself. It's something I always ask, you know, but that is a commonly reported trigger. Oh, I'm hearing you say it might cause it might trigger migraines for some people but there might be people out there who can drink themselves silly and it doesn't cause any migraines for them correct now you talk in your article from diet to disasters lifestyle factors can affect headaches and migraine mm -hmm. not just about food or alcohol but you also say that trauma i think was how you phrased it can affect the likelihood that you have uh, migraines? Yes. So there was a, so a very underserved area is the pediatric population and headaches. It's very underserved. There's not a lot of research, which is, you know, a shame, but there's only so many pedi uh, pediatric headaches, especially we have in the country. And one study that came out recently was looking at if you, if, you know, this childhood trauma 
or what was called an you know an adverse event in childhood an adverse child event it was actually what that that's how it was labeled is that correlate and they found that yes those who had had adverse childhood events had a higher risk ratio of developing migraine later on as far as sort of why you know again everything's inflammation meaning how we feel you know think of again i explain this with my patients what is the brain it's a cpu it's you know and it views stimulus and essentially what's happening and you think of a migraine is it's viewing stimulus wrong this you know the pain circuit isn't operating as it should and it's leading to this pain you know and it brings to the bacon trauma do this you hear the phrase mind over matter you know i never like saying it's all in your head but it makes sense pain is pain is not a physical per se thing it's your body registering something you know and really anything can make your brain think like that when you say it's all in your head do you mean psychological or no do you mean- oh, i was saying i don't like the term it's all in your head it's not psychological like pain is an organic thing pain is what your brain is processing as you know and my point is that that's why many things sort of lead to a pain disorder like why is this happening and i you know the term all in your head make it sounds like oh it's just psychological like no it's not that oh you know it's just the pressure whatever you just need therapy like no it's still you know the neurons are still firing synapses are still you know firing and you know detecting or saying something's there you know it's not that oh cool i have pain in my head doesn't mean your head's been cut open it doesn't mean there's a blockage somewhere but the neurons are still firing the pain is real you know that's why when someone says in your head it makes it sound fake like no the synapses the neurons are still operating is still telling you this is what you know this is what it's registering as and if tension is a trigger, which I think you said in the article that tension, or you said earlier, was, headaches, yeah. was one of the leading triggers for migraines, right? So when it comes to tension, you know, a common headache I diagnose all the time, something called cervical genic headache. Cervical meaning cervical is the top of your spine, your neck, genic generating it. So yes, yeah, so you carry a lot of tension in your shoulders, knots in your neck, etc. Think about like a big pulley system. Those muscles are pulling in the back of your head. And we do have what we call like pressure sensors around the head. So certainly these muscles are always engaged and they're angry. It's certainly to leave the headache attacks. You also talk about dietary nutrients like riboflavin and magnesium, thiamine, mm-hmm. coenzyme, co, uh, sorry, coenzyme. CoQ10. Yep. What can you tell us about those? So when it comes to supplements, you know, they've done studies not just on prescription treatments, but also what about certain dietary treatments? And those are the ones you mentioned. So for instance, we know that vitamin B2, riboflavin, deals with a lot of cellular, cellular like energy metabolism. So again, the thought is by taking that, it improves that and decreases inflammation. Same thing with coenzyme Q10. People commonly take coenzyme Q10 to lower their cholesterol. When it comes to magnesium, again, all these electrolytes are sort of fuel. And they have done studies that uh, postulate that perhaps those with migraine have lower mag- uh, magnesium levels in the blood and the blood flow in their brain. So that's why the thought of taking the magnesium improves with that. And there have been, th- those are, you know, uh, those are clinical trial, like they're proven to help. Are they as effective as the prescription therapies? No, but it's a great, you know, option for those who want to try something that's not a prescription therapy, you know, obviously a lower side a side effect profile compared to a prescription drug. Magnesium can cause bloating and sometimes loose bowel movements. Uh, vitamin B2 uh, will um, vitamin B2 will turn your urine light green. So don't think you're dying. No one told me that in college. Um, you know, it, it's very odd looking, but it's just the vibe. It's just the, the excess vitamin B2. 
But yeah, they're generally safe. Buy them over the counter at any pharmacy, any Costco, big store. It doesn't matter. And you didn't say anything about CoQ10. Oh, Fan? CoQ10. You know, again, so it, it, these, it's another anti-inflammatory. You could buy it, you know, anywhere. Um, has less side effects, really nil side effects uh, compared to mag and riboflavin. And some of these are sold together. You know, I don't have any, like, I, I, I'll say some brand. like, I, I know there are multiple brands like Migra Shield, Migra Leaf that are, like, they make it all in one pill. I know some patients take just to reduce their pill burden. You know, you also have other supplements like Feverfew, which is like a natural aspirin, Butterbur, which is a root. You know, these are, again, natural supplements you can find in any store that have evidence to reduce headache severity. The biggie, maybe the biggie, hormones. Hormones. So hormones, specifically, I'll say estrogen. And it sort of goes to why are women affected more? And there's a lot of, you know, things that go into play there. And, you know, a lot of women report migraine starting, worsening, improving, going away at different points of their life, such as when um, they start their, uh, their first period, menses, uh, during pregnancy. Um, and during and after menopause. And the thought is all these relate to fluctuating estrogen levels. What does estrogen do? Estrogen does a lot of things, a lot, a lot, a lot of different things. And one thing we know it does is it does, there are receptors in the brain that we do know it deals with the nervous system. And it goes back to dealing with the pain pathways. We know that fluctuating levels could lead to the release of inflammatory markers. Again, going back to, uh, you might've heard something called CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. This is a neuropeptide we know deals with, with migraine. You might have saw commercials for like the new drugs like Ubrovi, Nerdtech, Amavig on TV. Like I know these commercials have like Serena Williams and Kim Kardashian, Lady Gaga, et cetera. And these are drugs that target that neuropeptide. With uh, fluctuating estrogen levels, there's a release of that. Substance P, the pain peptide. Prostaglandins, that's what, uh, ask, that's what um, uh, Advil and Tylenol target. So you, when you have these fluctuating levels, you know, it, 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 it could lead to that happening. And that's why, again, menses, pregnancy, menopause, it fluctuates. Like, you know, everyone in my family, when I talk about migraine with my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, they all said when they went through menopause, it went away. It'll go away for you. I'm like, no, unless I'm the first guy to go through menopause, like, I don't, that's not the case for me. Um, there are some patients who take birth control to eliminate their menstrual cycle uh, when they feel it's related. There are some women that when they go through menopause and they develop migraine that some might take estrogen replacement therapy for that regard. Most women when they uh, who have migraine, when they become pregnant, the first trimester usually worsens, but by the second, it's gone. I've ever had patients who their headaches have been so bad, they keep getting pregnant because they say, I actually feel healthy. I feel better during pregnancy, you know, and it's different for every woman. It's not like this is the same for every single woman. No, because again, they fluctuate and affects them differently, but there is a very large role to play in that, you know, and we know like oxytocin, is what we call the love hormone. Like you ever notice, like, why is it when you pet your dog, you smile? It's because your body's releasing oxytocin. We know oxytocin modulates migraine. And again, when estrogen fluctuates, oxytocin fluctuates. And that's all these hormones come into play. And this does not play any role. I mean, men have a small amount of estrogen, right? Yes. Yes. But to my knowledge, it's not as large of a role as it is for women. And there's no change in their migraines as they age and go through their hormonal changes. Right. And also we don't have as large as, you know, estrogen fluctuating changes as women do. 
what does this mean in terms of approach, if you will, management, because I'm hearing you say there is no cure per se. What you're doing is identifying triggers and helping people understand Mm -hmm. their individual migraine situation, condition. What is the best approach that you have found? So there there are two sort of schools of thought. There's two areas. Treatments are, there's, there's two steps. The first is what we call abortive treatment, meaning when you get that migraine attack, what do you do? Something you could take, stop the attack, and get you back to functioning. But with most of those treatments, there's only a certain number you could take, usually around 10. For instance, triptan, which we'll talk about in a second. And if your frequency is greater than six a month, well, we don't want you taking popping too many of these abortives. If you take too many abortives, you actually can get what's called a rebounding headache. You There's something then the other side of the coin is preventative treatment. So if you have very frequent headaches, you take a certain medication to reduce the frequency, to reduce it to a point that it's safe to take the abortives. So those are the two kinds of treatments. Abortives, the most common is something called a triptan. There's multiple flavors of triptan, sumatriptan, rizotriptan, narotriptan, uh, frobotriptan, zolmatriptan, elotriptan, amotriptan. And they all are similar, but they have their small nuances. They Most of them come in as a pill form. Some come out of a dissolving tablet, some come out of a nasal spray, and one comes as an injectable pen. And then you have sort of the new what's called G-pans. These are drugs that came out two or three years ago that target that peptide I was talking about, CGRP, costone-generated peptide. And then go, those are, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of other treatments, but that's our mainstay ones. When it comes to preventative, what we call the first line, the level A, highest evidence, are uh, one is called propanolol, which was invented as a heart rate drug, but found to work very well on migraine. The next is called amitriptyline, which is actually an antidepressant, but again, found to work on a lot of the same receptors that migraine acts on. And then the third is topiramate, which was designed as an anti-seizure drug, but found to be very effective for migraine. And after that, you know, like I said, there's a lot of other ones. One is what we call, again, going back to CGRP, we, like I said, we, I did not personally do this. Um, they invented uh, CGRP monoclonal antibody. What's a monoclonal antibody? Think of it as a man-made antibody, a man-made immune response that targets that peptide CGRP related to migraine. And it comes, it looks like an EpiPen. And you take it once a month. And then also what surprised a lot of people is Botox is a treatment, believe it or not. Botox is an FDA-approved treatment for chronic migraine. Again, that's those who suffer eight migraine attacks a month with seven or more other more mild headache days. And it's not just, you know, in the face like cosmetic Botox. It's 31 to 40 injections all over the head. And, it's you know, it's very effective. And the way Botox works, I very much love the story of Botox. Botox is poison. <laughs> I don't know how many people listen to get Botox and, you know, I realize that now it's, we control it. It's Clostridium botulinum, uh, which is a spore that, you know, comes in the ground. I don't know. Those who live in California, you ever heard, don't ever feed your baby honey. That's where that comes from because it's naturally in the soil. But we have sort of mastered it. And what it does is it reduces sort of, you can think of it, how the nerves talk to each other. It reduces the release of certain neuropeptides. So for cosmetic, it doesn't allow the muscles to move. And that's why, you know, the wrinkles go away. But in chronic migraine and pain conditions, it stops the release of, you know, peptides we know that are related to pain, such as CGRP. Those are, I would say, the most common treatments. There are dozens and dozens of other sort of off-label treatments that exist for migraine as well. I just read, uh, I want to say it was Brain and Life magazine recently had an article about pain. And one of the things that they said was that people who take pain medication such as sumatriptan are 
much more sensitive to pain that they become, if I understood the article correctly, that they become much more sensitive to pain. So they're much more likely to feel pain than they were before they started taking those meds. Would you tell us about that? I got to read this article because that sounds a bit perplexing to me. You know, it's generally thought that those who suffer migraine are more stoic. They have a higher threshold, you know, than those who do not. Um, that, I mean, I'll say anecdotally, I've been using triptans for five, six years. I don't notice that. Um, that there's nothing in it that like, yes, having a pain condition can make you more sensitized to pain, but the treatment itself, I wouldn't relate to that. You know, there is a thought that some people with migraine or other headache disorders might develop, like you have centralized, you know, pain syndrome, which you just think of it like your body is, that's exactly what you were describing. You're just becoming more, what might've been just a flick now is more painful, you know, but taking the actual treatment, no, I wouldn't correlate it to a trip. There's nothing I know about that. What side effects can you tell us about? Because we know everything has a price, right? So what's right. the price that you pay for the medications? What do you have to be aware of? What do you have each, to... Each one has its own profile. Triptan is the most common one that I describe is it gives a sort of neck fatigue feeling that their neck might, and shoulders might feel tired. Like for me, it just feels like, like I, my, my neck, I've been bending it. Most of my patients don't care because the pounding headache is gone. It can also cause nausea and bloating. You can't take a triptan in the setting of any sort of severe cardiovascular conditions, like you had a heart attack, you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, you have arrhythmias, or you had a history of a stroke, or you have, you know, plaque in your, in your heart. Those are reasons you can't take it. Uh, G-pants have a lower side effect profile, really just nausea, bloating, vomiting are the most commonly reported ones, could cause skin rashes. When it comes to those prescribed treatments, so the beta blocker, propanolol, it was invented as a heart rate drug, so the most common side effect is fatigue. It's lowering the heart rate. It could do a lot of other things as well, shortness of breath. Um, it could affect mood. Uh, amitriptyline is an antidepressant, so it could affect mood as well. Although, again, all these doses we're giving it for are less than its, you know, its original intended use. And most, most common side for that is dry cough. It can sometimes cause urinary straining. Um, and topiramate, which is a very effective migraine drug, the most which was designed as an anti-seizure drug, the most common side effect is feeling tingliness in your hands. Um, it could affect memory. And when I tell patients, because they get very worried when they hear that, I say, we titrate it slowly. If you notice it, we stop it. That's that. You know, um, I always tell my patients to hydrate because in some cases it could cause a kidney stone. So hydrating well could prevent that. When it comes to the CGRP monoclonal antibodies, the most common side effect is injection site reaction, meaning where you inject might become red. Um, Amavig is known to cause constipation. Botox has a fairly lower side effect profile because it's not systemic. It's just, you know, injecting the head. But two main things is one, the dreaded droop, meaning if the medicine is injected wrong or it moves to the wrong spot, it could cause like your eyelid to droop, but that's temporary. Your body, you know, filters this out. Like it's not a permanent face alteration. That's the thing that worries a lot of patients. And then the other thing is that um, it could sometimes afterwards, like, you might get for a day or so, like a common cold-like feeling. You might feel a bit sore, but that's those are the, the common ones. And somewhere I heard, I think this is related to what you were saying earlier, that there's been a lot of controversy about the possible relationship, I think it's between some of the meds and dementia. Is that what you were referring to? Yeah, I was referring to before, can migraine, is it a risk factor for dementia? Migraine itself. 
And now, it's, go it's ahead. sort of just, it's unknown. You know, this was the bit of the last annual American Headache Society meeting that, again, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, it's an inflammatory change happening, occurring in the brain. Migraine is an inflammatory change. Is it correlated to each other? And, that, and more studies are needed. We're not entirely sure, but the logic sort of correlates. But, um, you know, we need more studies in that to further, you know, see if that's concrete. When we look at the universe of migraine sufferers in the States, which is pretty vast, are there any characteristics that stand out? Is there a larger population of migraine sufferers on one coast versus the other or in rural areas versus urban areas? Is there anything that strikes you as notable in this demographic yes so when it comes to regions that's sort of been changing over time they've been doing population studies before i was born you know even in the 80s and they have it's always been sort of changing so there's not really concrete evidence of like one region per se is worse than the others where we do see changes is in sort of ethnicity and really in income income i think is the biggest change where we know that those income really affects where people get in their care those that are in lower incomes are seeking most of their care at their primary caregiver or the emergency room, whereas those with high, you know higher income are actually seeing the headache specialists, neurologists, which in my opinion everyone should be able to see a headache specialist. But we could talk for months, years about you know the issues with the American healthcare system. Um, we do know also when it comes to sort of um, uh, ethnicities that there may be. Um, you know, we, we don't see as much as a prevalence difference per se in ethnicities, but that what we call migraine burden. So I guess before I get into that, you know, let me just quickly explain migraine burden. This migraine can burden people in a lot of ways, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of ways. And it's sort of, well, how does it, you know, how do we measure that is the question, you know, because that's, you know, burden is also, um, burden is uh, subjective and it is that how do we measure that? There's multiple different what we call tests. Um, the mo the the um, most common ones sort of that headache specialists and also these population studies do is called a Midas test. And what that is is it's a questionnaire and it has questions such as how many days in the past three months have you um, have you um, uh, you know have been able to go to work. Or how many days have you been only 50% of your work? You know, you're limited. How many days have you not been able to do chores around the house? How many days have you not been able to do, um, uh, go to school, you know, enjoy social activities? And, you know, what they actually saw was that it was that, you know, those, you know, who were Hispanic had a um, higher burden um, than those non-Hispanic. And, um, again, this was the most recent study. It was called Overcome. It was, you know, published uh, in 2022. Um, and it's a very big question to ask, like, is that what what elements are going on? You know, what what other because, you know, there's something called um, confounders and confounder in, in you know, scientific studies is something that you think there's a difference, but it's actually something else, you know, that's actually accounting for it. So it begs, you know, it, it begs the question that we need more studies to assess that other groups that are more, you know, there, you know, like there, there's a lot of evidence that shows those of minorities, you know, are getting lesser care uh, than, you know, Caucasians. 
and it's it's identifying those groups, identifying why is it, are we talking about, is it an urban versus rural? Is it a regional issue? You know, is it that maybe in the Northeast, I'm just giving an example, there's less headache specialists or whatever, like there's a lot of things that go into that. But of course that has to be addressed. Like it shouldn't be, there should never be any disparities in care, you know, especially at at risk, you know, populations. Um, you know, I could tell you, I was a medical resident in the Bronx and, you know, there were definitely, there was, you know, a, definitely a resource difference, you know, seeing what my patients were facing and what, you know, options were available. And you never want that for anyone. And it's, you know, that's why these population studies, every five or so years, they do these wide scale population studies. And that's why they're so important because that's, you know, it's easy for us to sit here and talk about it. Well, how do we solve it? Well, to solve it, we need the data. We have to, you know, every single um, population study that, you know, gets conducted, you know, over and over, there's been, you know, 10 plus, in the, you know, since they've started these, they've been refined, you know, where a, a recent publication I have that we just submitted for, I presented on this back in 2021, we did what's called a systematic review, uh, which is when you look at a bunch of studies, essentially, of all the, you know, U.S. epidemiology studies, and, you know, it was something we were evaluating. And we saw, again, as time went on, that these studies, how they got their metrics, it has been getting, you know, they've invented better modules, better way of assessing it when the MIDAS was invented in 2001, um, because that's a question that gets asked a lot. And we do see this different in groups. And now we have to say, how do we target these groups to get them better treatment, to get everyone the proper resources? Because headache is a huge burden. What it, it, the last figure I know offhand is the direct cost, meaning what it's costing our healthcare is like 20.1 billion. But what about the missed days of work? What about people calling out? What about when, you know, your kid has to come home because their migraine's bad, so you have to come home from work. You're not working as, you cannot able to work as hard that day because of the headache. You know, that it has such a far reaching, you know, stretch that migraine does. It wasn't until like, I think 2012, Cameo, which was a major population study, that was the name of it, was one of the first studies that they actually had a relationship module. They actually examined what is the effect of migraine, not just on the individual, but their partner, you know, because it definitely has a huge impact. Like, you know, like I can talk to, I remember, you know, calling my mom and be like, oh, you have to, you know, come pick me up for school or I have to leave my friend's house. You know, it has an impact in almost every facet of life. Like I could, as you can see, I go on and on. There's so many areas where it affects it, costing money, you know, decreasing quality of life, you know. I bet if I was asked my cat how it, how it affects her, she wouldn't be happy either. How common are migraines in children? I, I wasn't aware that they there were a lot of children that suffered migraines. That is a big question, you know, because again, pain is subjective. Our research is limited in that regard. How do we, you know, able to effectively ask these questions to, you know, youth and to get a, you know, answer that we could quantify? And there's been one major dedicated study, specifically chronic migraine, you know, that I know is targeting the youths. It's estimated around 0.8% of U.S. adolescents, 12 to 17 years old, suffer from chronic migraine. And then there are those who suffer um, from uh, daily headache, meaning those on those migraine features that could be as high as like 1.8 to 2%, you know. So there are some numbers out there, but again, um, it's difficult to, again, assess because, you know, they, you know, these are, you know, if you were to ask five-year-old me when I first remember getting these headache attacks, I would, I, would, I you know, I don't know how the heck I would, you know, respond. But, you know, there is a lot, you know, there's been a lot of movement in the past years, 
um, a lot more rising pediatric headache specialists to answer this, you know, to uh, do this, to sort of, A, do clinical trials in these treatments, and to, uh, because a lot of the treatments we have are not FDA approved in children. They haven't been properly assessed in children, you know, like, uh, and that, that's a big deal because, cool, let's say you get the diagnosis in a child, what can they get? You know, obviously, you want them to get adequate treatment, but again, also assessing what's the true number. Um, and these are a lot of ongoing studies. Going back to the characteristics that stand out, does the profile that you were describing earlier, that some groups have a greater burden than others, that it might be socioeconomic, how does that compare with other parts of the world, say Europe or Asia, Latin America, Africa? So I will, there have been a lot of studies around the world. I will admit, I don't know the other more global or foreign studies as well as the American studies. That's where a lot of like my work goes in. You know, um, I was part of the recent uh, large U.S. population study overcome. Uh, I have not partic- you know, participated in a global study. Um, pre- prevalence wise, you know, uh, the numbers are similar. Uh, the big difference is actually treatment. You know, the, uh, we actually have the most headache treatments. There are a lot of headache treatments that are not available. Uh, for instance, I was just in, like I was saying before, I was just in Korea for an international headache meeting. And I found out that, you know, the monoclonal antibodies that we've had for five years, they're, you know, they're just starting to get a few of them. And the G-Pant, Dubrovinertec, which we've had for two years, many countries do not have that. You know, that they're, and I don't understand what foreign, you know, pharmaceutical regulatory authorities do. You know, I only speak upon the FDA, but you know, they're not available. So there's definitely a lack of access for that stuff. Is this a cost issue or is it just that they haven't reached them yet? Honestly, I'm not sure, you know, that obviously those countries have single payer healthcare, they have nationalized healthcare. I don't know what their constraints of their government is. I don't know, um, you know, I don't know if it's easier to conduct clinical trials or more streamlined to conduct um, clinical trials in uh, the U.S. compared to others. But I do know, like, yeah, a lot of treatments first get approval in the States and then, you know, have to go through other regulatory pathways or setting up their trials in other countries. And I also, you know, know that RFDA is really strict. You know, I know during the pandemic, the FDA got a lot of flack, but there are a lot of vaccines that didn't get approved in the United States that got approved elsewhere. You know, the biggest example is AstraZeneca. The AstraZeneca and I don't mean to go into COVID vaccines on this, but my point is that, you know, when people ask, well, you know, is it that our FDA is letting all these drugs in easily? And I go, no, that's not necessarily the case because we have one of the more stricter, actually, FDA um, protocols. Well, there's been a lot of controversy about the quality of medications and that whole process. Uh, there was a book, the Bottle of Lies, that documented many of those issues do you know where these medications for migraines are made? Are they made in the U.S. or India, China? I don't know that answer. You know, there's, I mean, it depends on the drug they made. You know, I know um, a lot of pharmaceutical production occurs in Puerto Rico. You know, a lot does occur in China. Um, and, um, but to the, which drugs are made where, that I don't know individually. A new alternatives, I think is how it's been described, to opioids, a traditional pain relief choice medication, things like gabapentin. Is this something that has been used 
for migraines? Is is this a, an, an alternative that has been contemplated? So one, I'll say the headache world is not like opiates. We do know from our population studies, opiates could worsen migraine and lead to chronic migraine. Gabapentin, which is, you know, vented as anticonvulsant and is used commonly as a neuropainkiller. We do use it. The evidence is not as strong as the other drugs I mentioned, but gabapentin and its and its sister, pregabalin, Lyrica, you know, are used uh, for the treatment of headaches. Um, I sometimes use it in the elderly because a lot of the other drugs I cannot be taken in those who have advanced age where gabapentin can. Why can't they be taken in the elderly? Sorry. Well, certain the gabapentin can, but like, for instance, treatments like propanolol, you know, um, uh, amitriptyline, they could have more side effects than those of advanced age, which is why gabapentin could be a common uh, choice as a migraine treatment for those and uh, for our elderly patients. And so is, is migraine or are migraines still prevalent in a lot of elderly? As you were saying that as women age, after menopause, for many of them, the migraines disappear. So did I But for some, it starts at an old age. You know, it's oh, so I misunderstood. Ways. Okay, sorry. Most women, it's typically, they at menstrual cycle goes away at menopause, but I certainly have patients that it started after menopause. And so you have to start treatment and identification and the whole process after menopause. They come to me, yeah. You know, I have patients come to me in their 70s, like, what is this? I'm like, well, you know, took 70 years, but you have migraine, you know, and it started then. Again, we don't have all the information about why this is happening. Is there any relationship with neurodiversity issues such as, uh, and I'm not sure what the correct term is now, Asperger's syndrome disorder? Oh, well, so uh, you're referring to autism. Asperger's, it used to be there was autism and Asperger's, but now it's all um, the autism spectrum. Um, and um, the, I'll admit, because that I don't know as much information of that relation, because they look at a lot of things like that. Um, to my knowledge, not a major one, but also, you know, and a big thing with me, I don't ever put my foot in my mouth on things I don't know, because I'll admit I don't know of the relationship with with autism and migraine. For people who want to learn more, because it sounds like there is a wealth of information and a great diversity of aspects relating to migraines. You were saying earlier that each individual has a different migraine condition. Mm -hmm. How can they learn more? Where can they go to get additional information, to read more articles, uh, either about the aspects that we've talked about? There's so much more. Uh, you talk in your article about the effects of the pandemic and natural disasters, and we ran mm -hmm. out of time for that. But where can they go to learn more? Where can they go to uh, find out the answers to questions we have? So first, answered. I'll do my shameless plug. Uh, I do have a website, headache123.com, where I do blog about, it has all my articles and interviews, and it also has a blog that I started. For instance, my most recent post was about vitamin D deficiency and migraine. You know, so I usually, whatever the hot topic or a topic I think was going on, you know, that I post my thoughts. With, I also put citations, so it's not just hot air I'm blowing. I do back up everything I say. Um, 
And that's, you know, uh, there's always stuff to read there. But also places that people can read. One, I always give a shout out to the Miles for Migraine, one of the biggest advocacy groups for migraine in the country. They do a lot of fundraising through 5Ks and walks for headache fellowship education programs, research, and, you know, further advocacy. They have a website. They have tons of events all over the country. There's the American Migraine Foundation. There's the American Headache Society. You know, if you're an international uh, listener, the International Headache Society, you know, but all these societies, their mission is to improve headache medicine, headache education, headache research, and to make it so no one loses the date of their headache. You know, all those are all fantastic places to start. If we're saying that migraines and headaches are completely different, why do they fall under the heading and the organizations for headaches? I'm sorry, repeat your question? We said at the beginning that migraines and headaches are very different. Mm -hmm. Why is it that so often the funding and the organizations that you just shared and several names of organizations where you mm -hmm. can get more information and the title was headache rather than migraine. Right. And I'm saying, is this just about funding? What are the reasons why? Uh, so the American Headache Society, you know, migraines are bread and butter, but there's many kinds of headaches out there. You know, what is headache? Headache, head pain. You know, there's like migraine is probably the is, is one of the most common reasons for a head pain. But there's tons of other ones. I treat cluster headaches. I treat, you know, example I give. So I had saw on the other day, primary sexual headache at the point of climax, the patient gets a thunderclap, a sudden, they think they're dying. You know, primary exertional headache. I've seen cold stimulus headache. Imagine getting a brain freeze that lasts two hours, you know. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of headaches out there. It's just that migraine is the most common one, is the most talked about one. But, there, you know, that's why the American Headache Society, you know, the only migraine is it its only, you know, mission. Because um, as a headache specialist, I don't only treat migraine. I treat trigeminal neuralgia, cluster, hemicarinia, continua. There's a bunch of stuff. You know, it's just migraine is the most common one. So it sounds like the first step is under this category is to figure out whether what you have is just yeah. a guard variety, let's call it that headache, or what you have is a more complex condition sure. that is. You might have cluster headaches. You might have something else. There's a lot of weird headaches out there. A lot of weird ones. Fred, thank you for joining us from New York City. Thank you for having me here. It was a pleasure. And to our audience, you have been listening to Fred Cohen, MD, who is a headache specialist at Mount Sinai Medical System in New York City, who discussed who discussed migraines. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.